Amen. So we're in 1 Peter tonight, chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7 in a study I'm calling, I Know Who Wrote the Book of Love. Because the, <laughs> the question has often been asked, but we know the answer, right? And so the Lord, see, the Word does give us wisdom in these things. Now, are you a person who reads the instruction manual before or when assembling something? Now, I, I don't like reading instruction manuals, especially the ones from Ikea. Because they're, they're crazy, man. They're like stick figures, you know. And I don't even know what language it's in. But, you know, so I, I try my best. You know, I, I get all my screws out, you know, the A and, you know, the B ones and all that, line them up. But I wasn't a person who always followed directions. And so I got into a lot of mistakes, which is why I follow directions now. I remember trying to build a baby gate. Man, that thing was made of plastic. It was, it was made of iron kind of thing, right? As I said in Rocky IV, it was crazy. So I didn't follow directions, so I put the pieces in, and later on I had a flathead out trying to pry that thing back out. And so following directions is, is important because, you know, it shows us the right way to do things. Well, the Bible has rightly been called the instruction manual for life. Bible, right? B-I-B-L-E, right? It breaks down basic instructions before leaving earth. It's basic instructions before leaving earth. It's everything that we need to know, as Peter says, about life and godliness. He says that in 2 Peter. It teaches us what we need to know to walk this life. And so, I mean, we, you know, we learn a lot about things as we read through the Word, but specifically about the marriage relationship. The Bible teaches us how to function as husbands and wife as we walk with the Lord. Now, in our culture today, there's a variety of material on marriage, and the reason is because marriage is common to all. I mean, even if a person's a pagan, a lot of times they, they still get married. Marriage is, is a part of our culture. And since this is so common, there's a lot of different opinions about marriage. And there's a lot of people trying to redefine marriage, right, as we see in the news and things like that. But, you know, regardless of all the opinions out there, if you really had to narrow it down, you can narrow it down in two ways. Number one, there's those who follow man's teaching on marriage and those who follow God's teaching on marriage. Now, as we all know, we need to follow what the Bible says about marriage because it's the instruction manual for life. God is the designer of marriage. He's the manufacturer. And so you should always follow the, what the manufacturer says. You know, you've got all these lowriders out there today. If you have a lowrider, hey, I love you. <laughs> but, you know, you've got these engineers, you know, and they, like, they spend all this money on you know, our in time and energy and education on making the suspension ride good, and then guys just take and cut the shocks off, you know, and then they bounce down 198. <laughs> And that's what people do with marriage. God designed it. God made it. Only God can tell you how it's supposed to ride. And we're, we're told that in the book of Genesis. Listen to Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. It says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in his place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now the bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so God actually performed the first wedding ceremony there in the Garden of Eden. On day six of creation, God formed Adam of the dust of the ground. And then sometime that day, God took one of Adam's ribs, or maybe a chunk of his side, put Adam to sleep first before he did that, and then God formed the woman. When Adam woke up, it was love at first sight. He said, whoa, man, woman, you know, she's just like me. And there God sealed their love in, a, in an eternal covenant. 
It would be a covenant of companionship, man and woman, forever, and that no man should break. These two were to go through life being one, but also continually becoming one as they grow in their love, in their unity to one another. Now, marriage in the beginning was perfect. And the reason is, is because Adam and Eve were innocent. You know, and then something happened in marriage that would actually affect marriages, you know, specifically Adam and Eve's marriage, but also all marriages after that. And that something is called sin. That something's called sin. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, something happened. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God's word, sin came into the line of man. Now man had the flesh to contend with within marriage. Now they had sin to contend with within marriage. And with that came a need for God's instructions on marriage. Before that, there was really no need to instruct them on marriage. Genesis um, 2 is just stating what it was, man and woman becoming one. The only command that God had to give before the fall was not to eat of the fruit. But other than that, Adam and Eve, it came natural to them. They would love each other. They would submit to each other. They would do everything for, for one another because it came from an innocent of heart. But once sin came, instruction was needed in order for man to proper, uh, mankind to properly function in the roles that God has established in marriage. We see that in Genesis 3. God said, okay, here's the result now of sin, and this is what's going to happen. And we see more instructions in the law about marriage. And finally, we have really the pinnacle of it in the New Testament. We have God's instructions on marriage. And so it's important for you and I as pilgrims to read the Bible and know what God says about marriage because we're saved by God's grace, but we still have a flesh. Marriage is perfect, but we're not. God wants us to operate in these roles as husbands and wife, but we need to follow his word in order to know how to do it. And Peter gives us two of these instructions tonight as we look at this passage. As we look at this instruction that Peter gave these pilgrims in the first century, we'll learn two things from our text. Number one, wives, you're to submit to your husbands for the glory of God. And number two, husbands, you're to love your wives for the sake of your intimacy with God. So first, in verses 1 through 6, we learn that wives are to submit to their husbands for the glory of God. Now, the instructions that Peter gives us here can apply to all wives. It can apply to any, any wife here today or, or future wives. But the specific context is actually referring to those women who had unbelieving husbands. Now, it wasn't that these Christians went out and found unbelieving spouses. No, as the gospel went forth, women were saved and their husbands were not. They didn't believe. And so since Peter was writing to a Jewish and Gentile audience, some of their husbands would have been at home while they were at church. You know, maybe they were Jews practicing Judaism, or maybe they were just pagans. Think about that, coming home to a pagan idol-worshiping husband after spending Sunday night with the church. What were they to do? How were they to function in this new role as a Christian? Well, Peter gives them some insight here in these verses. First one, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. And so Peter begins this chapter by saying likewise. And so this is really an indicator pointing us back to what was previously just said. As we looked at in the previous chapter, Peter talked about submitting to the government, and he talked about submitting to our bosses. He told us we're to respect them, we're to obey them, we're to recognize that God has established this. And now he says, likewise, referring to the institution of marriage. And so just as God has established authority in the government and also in the workplace, God has also established authority in the home. God has established a structure, an order, in which we're to follow as believers. That structure and order is given by Paul, 
In 1 Corinthians 11.3, he said, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And so God's established an order in the household. And Peter says, therefore, because of that, the woman is to submit to the leadership of the husband. Now, it's important to note that the basis of submission is not because the woman is inferior to the man, nor is it because the woman is not equal to the husband, but it's just the order that God has established. This is just God's order. Think about Christ. Look at Christ. We're told in Philippians chapter 2 that Christ, though he was equal with God, did not consider it robbery to be, um, to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He took up the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of men. So Christ was equal with the Father. I am the Father one. But yet his role as the Son was that he was to submit to the Father. In the same way in marriage, the woman and man are equal, right? In the eyes of God, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. We're all one in Christ, but yet in our roles, we have different functions and roles. And the roles that God has established is that the husband is the head of the home and the wife is his helper. Now, from this arises a couple questions for us to kind of think about as we work through this. First of all, what does it even mean to submit? Now, it doesn't mean that your husband comes before God in his word. And so we're to obey you know, your husband's in the Lord. And so if your husband wants to drag you to a place that might stumble you or sin or would seek to cause you to sin, well, then you say, well, no, I serve the Lord. He's, you know, he's my head. He's my authority. Also, submission doesn't mean that a woman has no say-so in decision-making, right? And so, you know, it's a relationship, you know, and, and the companionship requires communication. I mean, most marriage problems begin with that, lack of communication, you should have known. Well, I didn't know. Well, you should have known. Well, I didn't know. Why didn't you say anything? Who knows? Kind of thing. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's usually the way it happens, you know? And so, um, so, you know, we need to communicate. And as the husband, the wife, you know, walk in the Lord, and, you know, as the two draw closer to Christ, naturally like a triangle, as you get closer to Christ, you'll be, you'll be one. And the decision-making will be done equally, you know, and, and it'll be done uh, prayerfully. But nevertheless, um, the Bible does say that the husband does have authority to, to lead the family. Now, second question is this. What if the husband is not a believer? And Peter tapes that up here. He addresses really this issue from verse 1 all the way to verse 6. You see, once a woman becomes a Christian, if her husband is no, not a believer and her children aren't believers, then, well, then her home becomes her mission field. The home becomes a really a time in which you can minister for Christ. Now, your mission field, Peter says here, is not necessarily an apologetics conference, nor is it a harvest crusade. Your husband can be one without the word. In other words, you live out a drama of redemption in front of them as you act out the teachings of Christ, as you live out Christ. Now, you should know the word because questions could arise. I mean, look at Lee Strobel. Great story of him. I mean, he became... Or, um, no, excuse me, his wife um, became a Christian. And he was like, I'm going to turn her away from Christ. This is crazy. And so, you know, he began searching it out because of the example of his wife. And he, he ended up getting saved. You know, and, and you know, so also, you know, so we also need to know the gospel so we can preach the gospel. But Peter says here, a lot of our witness, your witness as a woman <laughs> kind of thing, you know, before your unbelieving, um, unbelieving uh, husband or for a guy, before your unbelieving wife, is going to be to live out the teachings of Christ before them. That is the tool that's really going to touch their heart. It's a, the right tool for the right job. 
Now, even if the husband is disobedient to the word, or if he's continually disobedient to the word, which is what the verse is here, they're going to see the, um, God's glory revealed through your life as you submit to him. Now, verse 2, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So as you live for Christ, you really have a captive audience in front of you. They're just going to kind of watch you. You know, as you, as you live for the Lord, you know, they're going to they're gonna see the things that you say, the things that you do, the decisions that you make. He'll observe your chaste conduct and your fear of God. Chaste conduct is a life separated to God and His Word. It's real simple. Your life is chaste. It's set apart. It's separated for the Lord and His glory. And also, the fear of God is your reverence for God. It's what motivates you to do the things you do. Now, the fear of God isn't because you're terrified of getting struck down by lightning, but it's really your reverence for God. It's recognizing who He is and understanding who you are, that you're a sinner saved by grace. And so, because, of God's, you know, because God's so good and because of all He's done for you, you submit your life to Him, and then also you submit to your husband. Now, Peter's going to expand this a little bit. In verses 3 through 4, we're going to see what chaste conduct is for the wife. And then in verses 5 through 6, we see what godly fear is for the wife. And so first in verses 3 through 4, it says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And so the focus of the wife in having this chaste conduct is not solely based upon the outward appearance. And Peter talked about the outward appearance here. It was a common thing. This dress was common, common in the Roman culture. Now it's important that Peter says here, he said, listen, it's not all about getting dressed up. Don't make you know, your only focus of being changed upon your outward appearance. So rather than just focusing on a makeover... Peter says you should be focusing on your spiritual nature because that is what is really going to demonstrate the glory of God. The real you is the spiritual you. You're a new creation in Christ. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you have the opportunity to let this incorruptible beauty shine forth from your life. Now, there's nothing wrong with, you know, doing these things. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with wearing apparel, right? Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and doing your hair and, and things like that. People make bigger, you know, bigger things out of this verse than it even says. Peter's just saying, hey, listen... That's great. You want to live a changed life before your husband? Well, it's not all about you just having a makeover. It's about you living out what's inside your heart before him and, and demonstrating what the Lord has done in your life and, and demonstrating your conduct and your works before him. In verse 3, we're given some outward examples of corruptible beauty, things that deteriorate, right? And, but in verse 4, we're given two examples of incorruptible beauty, things that never change, things that only get better and more beautiful. Those characteristics are a gentle and quiet spirit. A, a gentle spirit means meekness. Meekness is really strength under control. And, you know, that's really what it is. It, you know, often we think of meekness as weakness, but it's not. Meekness is strength under control. And we know that it's not weakness because Jesus was called gentle. He was called meek in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus was the king of kings. He was the God of the heavens and the earth, but yet he chose to come as a man and he chose to live a meek life, surrendering to the Father's will. He understood the power of God. He understood his position. And because of that, it affected how he lived. A quiet spirit is a spirit that submits peaceably, which is in contrast to strife and contention. Now, the Proverbs, sometimes we make light of it. The Proverbs speaks often 
you know, and not fondly about a contentious wife. Five times it actually speaks of a contentious woman. And really the grand finale of it all is Proverbs 27, 15. It says, a continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. And so, hey, that's what Solomon said. I, I didn't say that. And so, and so, you know, Proverbs, it doesn't speak too highly about a contentious woman, but rather it praises a woman of a quiet spirit. One who is meek, one who is willing to submit to the word of God and to the leadership of God and, and the authority of God. These qualities are good tools to witness in the home. They're really the effective work, workmanship that, you know, that the Lord wants to do in your life and through your life. But also they're a great way to worship God. They're a great way to worship God. Notice that Peter says here these are very precious in the sight of God. They're, they're very precious in, in the eyes of the Lord. And the reason it is is because they're costly. And that's really what the word very precious, I'm told, is in Greek. It means very costly, costly or extremely costly. And it reminds me of Mary when she broke that alabaster flask there and anointed Jesus with that precious perfume. You remember that right before his burial? There she was, and she knew who Christ was. She loved Christ. She wasn't the wife of Christ, by the way, if any Dan Brown readers out here in Dimitrika was not the wife of Christ. I just, I just thought I would point, point that out. But she was a servant of Christ, and she was a worshiper of Christ, and so she understood this, and so she took that very costly oil, and she broke it. It probably would take a year's wage to buy the oil. And there she anointed Christ. And when the disciples saw this, they were shocked. They said, hey, why are you doing this? And they began to ridicule her and criticize her. You should have gave that to the poor. Specifically Judas, because he was money hungry. He would just steal the money out of the box. But Jesus corrected him. He said, hey, listen, no, she has done this for my burial. She's taken this very costly thing, and she has given it to me. And it's precious in my sight. In the same way for the wife who submits to the husband. The world might look at you and think, what are you doing? Drop that zero and get you a hero, right? Kind of thing, right? You know, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you submitting to, you know, to, to that non-believer? Well, hey, it's, it's my worship offering to the Lord. Sadly, sometimes even Christians might talk you out of submitting to and being a witness to a non-believing husband. Say, man, just leave him. Go find a Christian guy and you'll be good to go. Even the disciples criticized him. But yet, we need to obey the word and we need to obey the Lord. Now, yes, there is grounds for divorce in the Bible. And those grounds for divorce are adultery and abandonment. But uh, besides that, um, you know, the, the Bible says that we're to submit and, and glorify the Lord um, in these matters. And so it's a very costly thing. And it's precious in the sight of God and it's glorifying to Him. It's an act of worship before Him. Verse 5, For in this manner, in former, time, former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good, and are not afraid with any terror. Now, if you live a chaste life with godly conduct and reverence before the Lord, well, then you're in a better wives' club than ones that wear cool hats, or one that sew, or, or you know, craft, or exercise. You're in a godly, biblical wives' club. So, I mean, you know, you can wear a little pin kind of thing. You know, as you go around. And Peter even points to an honorable alumni here, Sarah, who is one of really the, the originals here in this club. 
Sarah's life was a life of faith, submission, and reverence. And it's seen here by the very fact that she called her husband Lord. Now, the focus isn't necessarily on what she said, but on how she lived. And the word Lord means sir in, you know, in the Old Testament context. But really, what, the, what Peter's trying to communicate here is that she had an understanding that the Lord was leading Abraham, and she was one to, to follow. And we see that throughout the life of Abraham. I mean, when God called him from Ur, she was willing to follow and to obey, and, you know, and she was willing to follow Abraham and trust God. Now, they weren't always perfect, obviously. Abraham did have, have his faults, and Sarah did have her faults, too. But nevertheless, in the end, if you had to ask her, was, she, was it worth it for submitting to Abraham? And the answer was yes. In the end, the Lord worked it out. In the end, she was an example to all of what it is to follow the Lord and to follow His will. And so maybe in the moment you think, okay, you know, is this, is this the wise thing to do? And in the end, the Bible says, well, yes, it is. Because you're going to glorify the Lord in it. And in the end, God is going to work all things together for good for those who love Him. So that's the, the wife's example. Now it comes to the husband, our turn. Our second point in verse 7, we learn that husbands are to love your wives for the sake of your intimacy with God. Verse 7, husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may be not hindered. So Peter again here gives this likewise, and so he's telling us men that we also have a responsibility, and our responsibility is to love our wives, specifically as Christ loved the church. And that's what Paul said in Ephesians 5, 25. He says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he may sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he, that he may present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so the husband has a pretty great responsibility here. First of all, love our wives like Christ loved the church, and that's, that's pretty loving. Christ is willing to lay down his life for us. Even when we weren't loving him, he loved us. Why? Because he chose to submit to the Father's will. It was the fear of God. It was his love for God, and that what drove him to submit to love. Also, just as you love your own body, right? I mean, everybody feeds their own body kind of thing, right? People in the gym, they love their body too much at times, you know? But, you know, but nevertheless, you know, we, we love our own body, and so in the same way, we should give that same love out to our wife. It's, it's important. And so that's our responsibility. Now, Peter gives us some ways that we can love our wives practically, as we live with them. And he gives us really three things. First, we're to love our wives physically. Peter says that we are to dwell with them. Now, the word dwell means much more than just live with them, right? It means it implies companionship. It implies care, right, and, and provision. Our, our responsibility is to care for our wife and to, and to provide and to dwell in this companionship with them. Second, our love includes emotionally. Emotionally, we're to dwell with them with understanding. Men are to understand that women have emotional needs. Honoring them means that we're not to joke on it, but we're to understand these things and to love them in it, right? And that would have to do with listening 
and communicating. Sometimes it's, it's kind of harder for men, right? We're kind of doers, right? I'll fix this right now kind of thing. But sometimes we just need to listen, communicate, and pray, right? And, and Peter says, hey, listen, you know, you're, we're dealing with, with man and woman here, and so this is how you're to walk, guys. Third, we're to love our wives spiritually. We're heirs together of grace. And so we're, you know, we're saved. We're, we're walking in this, this context of marriage. And we're to understand that it's a spiritual relationship. And the reason why God has brought us together is so we can minister one to another, to encourage one another in the things of the Lord. For the men, our job is to protect our homes from ungodly influences and to encourage our wives with the washing of the water of the word. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be legalistic about things, you know, and say, oh, no, we're having Bible study time right now, you know. I mean, it's good to have Bible study, but, you know, but it means that we're to make our home surrounded around the Word of God and centered on the Word of God, and it, it's helpful and good to read the Word of God together and, and to pray together in, in, in these things, but most importantly, we're to make our home a place where the Lord can be glorified and, and where sin is, is, is kept out. Now, all these things are essential, notice this, for spiritual growth. If you neglect your marriage, you're going to hinder your prayer life and therefore your relationship with God. It's pretty important stuff. People say, oh, no, ministry comes before marriage. Well, apparently it doesn't. Because, <laughs> because if, if you're neglecting your spiritual matters at home, then your prayer life is going to be hindered and therefore your ministry is going to be hindered. And so the way that we grow in our relationship with the Lord as men is by submitting to the Lord and doing the things that the Lord has tell, tells us as, as husbands, as wives. So in closing, all people need instructions on marriage. It's obvious, right? Now you have two choices. You can redefine marriage. You can choose the world's examples on marriage or can choose what the Bible says about marriage. In the end, we'll look back as Sarah did, as Abraham did, as all the other examples did. We'll be able to look back and know, okay, I glorified the Lord in this circumstance, and the Lord was able to work all things together for my good and His glory. Amen? Father, thank you.